the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at, at danproftshow.com where you can get podcasts and program as you can on Spotify and iTunes. On social media, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. And uh, we start with uh, some of uh, Joe Biden's uh, more than two dozen executive orders uh, just in the first uh, few days of his administration. Sort of remarkable, as the Wall Street Journal observed over the weekend. Hey, look who's a big fan of Brett Kavanaugh and his theory about the unitary executive now. <laughs> sure. Also, a question for those uh, self-styled center-right fiscal conservatives and social moderates. Forever uh, chastising conservatives like myself, right? You know, the problem with you social conservatives, you're, you're pushing those moral issues. Stick to the pocketbook issues, right? Pocketbook issues is how we win. I, I, I don't want to have an agenda. I don't support politicians that have an agenda on moral issues as if that's, a, that's possible. That's like the objective reporter. It doesn't exist except in sort of rhetorical theory as a cover story for champagne socialists who are frauds. That's what they are. Fiscal conservative, social moderate. Leftist. That's what that means. And we're seeing it play out. And if you don't believe me, no problem. Ask your friends. Ask your friends, your self-styled fiscal conservative, social moderate friends, what they think of Joe Biden's views and executive orders in the direction of trans men playing women's sports uh, or trans women, whatever the terminology is, men playing women's sports, Uh, men pretending to be women in the military or vice versa. Uh, His uh, uh, edicts in the direction of being pro-abortion, which he is, abortion on demand. Federal funds to pay for abortions, which is opposed by 75, 80 percent of the public. And while he uh, walks around as a devout Catholic and not only a devout Catholic, but according to The New Yorker and The New York Times, the Catholic who just might save American Catholicism from the far right. That's the headline in The New Yorker over the weekend. Tell me again about uh, fiscal conservatives, fiscal conservative social moderate. Tell me again about uh, how uh, we need to focus on pocketbook issues and not moral issues. What they're proposing is unilateral disarmament. And um, that's how you have the left run the table on everything that is cultural, which uh, is more powerful than a particular federal statute. And giving them cover are people like David French over at the Bulwark, who essentially says that Christian Trump voters owe American apology. That's where his focus is as Biden is issuing these executive orders I described 
French tweeting, two things are true. You can oppose the worst executive orders, either through litigation when appropriate, uh, including through litigation when appropriate, I should say. Yet a handful of bad EOs does not mean it was better to support a deranged liar who didn't cite the sacking of the Capitol to hold on to power. Right. Well, that's one perspective. And that's from a social conservative. And thus the crack up of, well, the Republican Party to some extent. For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined again by Roderick, senior editor at the American Conservative, author of Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. Uh, Rod, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, it's great to be here, Dan. But uh, it's really something to see on the first day of office, President Biden launched this blitzkrieg against social conservatives. But this, as you were alluding to earlier, this is exactly how the left does it. Whenever uh, they do these aggressive moves against social conservatives, moves that aren't even popular, they accuse us of uh, waging culture war on them. And they have the media right behind them. Well, and and, and what do you say to, um, you know, the the sort of the never Trump Christian like a David French who's saying uh, we should be uh, those who supported Donald Trump, understanding what he was and what he wasn't. Uh, should be in the business of issuing apologies to America, not focusing on that blitzkrieg you just described. Well, you know, I, I think that I understand why David feels that way, because he was hit in an incredibly uh, vicious manner. His family was by some extremist on our side. And so I, I give him grace on that. But we can't be looking back to the past. We've got to look to the future because persecution of social conservatives, religious and, and otherwise, is coming, and it's coming from this administration through its policies and through the laws that it's going to be able to get through a Democratic Congress. And uh, you have um, sort of this uh, battle for the soul of uh, the Republican Party starting perhaps, uh, probably not maybe not starting with, but certainly including the two caucuses. You had an announcement today that Rob Portman, the incumbent Republican senator, is not going to be running for re-election. So that pre- creates a, perhaps another toss-up seat uh, where there wouldn't have been one if he was running for re-election for Republicans. And so, you know, Mitch McConnell... Uh, and uh, the Republican caucus's disposition in the Senate, for example, uh, to uh, taking up some of these these issues that, you, as you say, are not popular, but um, are also not challenged, really. Now, you know, Dan, what's so interesting uh, for me as a conservative was to learn how little interest the institutional Republican Party has in social conservatism. I went up to the Hill in 2014, I believe it was, right after a Obergefell, uh, which legal, the Supreme Court ruling legalizing gay marriage, right after it passed. And I, I talked to some Christian members of, uh, of the Senate staff and the House staff, key, key members. And I said, OK, so what are you guys going to do to protect people like me, uh, Christians and other social conservatives? Are you going to pass things to defend our religious freedom in the light of the new uh, Supreme Court ruling? Total silence, Dan. Total silence. They said they had no plans for it. This taught me a lot about the corruption of the institutional Republican Party. And for all of his problems, and they were massive, Donald Trump at least stood up for pro-life, in a, in a, in a, and he stood up for the traditional family, and he stood against this craziness about uh, letting, about forcing the federal government, forcing schools and colleges that take federal money to allow biological males to compete in women's sports. Trump stood up against that. I don't know that the Republican Party, without him, is going to have the guts to do it. Well, and then, then I mean, that seems like uh, that's part of the um, conversation right now about the lack of an identity. If you, if 
you don't want Trump to be the identity of the Republican Party, what is it you do want in terms of the brand? And uh, those with the leadership titles don't seem to have a particularly compelling answer to that question. No, they really don't. And this is one thing that worries me a lot. I, I was looking forward to Senator Josh Hawley taking up the mantle of Trumpian populism after Trump left. But he seems to have really blown his career up by the way he acted before the election. And uh, I hope he can recover because we need the good we need the good things about Trump without the bad things. I think Trump really is yesterday's politician. I hope that the conservatives realize that. He did some good things. He did some bad things. But he's yesterday. He's got to go forward and be strong. And uh, but so far, I don't see anybody on the Republican side moving to take up that mantle of leadership. It's interesting, too, because uh, you, as you point out how Trump was you know, unapologetic about everything, but including about uh, his uh, defense of life, his opposition to so much of the identitarian uh, 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 political agenda and um, and and. And, you know, he got 75 million votes. I mean, I, I understand he lost the election, but there's nobody in the Republican Party uh, b- b- before him. I, I mean, in terms of 2016 to present or now currently that enjoys anything approaching the sort of uh, popular support that he has. Uh, and, and that's with, you know, his personality, which obviously was a turnoff to a lot of people. I, I just don't understand why there is not more courage of conviction when you even have examples of perhaps um, an accidental uh, defender of some of those issues uh, uh, benefiting politically from taking those positions? Yeah, I I think a lot of it has to do with the donor class, Dan, to be honest. I mean, the donor class in the Republican Party, they are the exact people you were talking about earlier, the fiscal conservatives, social liberals. And I think what the donor class expects is that the Republican Party will give lip service to social conservatives. They consider us embarrassing, but deliver on tax cuts and things like that. And uh, I I think that one thing Trump has done, for better or for worse, is he's exposed this. And I I wish – I mean, Senator Hawley said right after the election that uh, we now know that the future of the Republican Party is as a working-class party. I wish that were true, but I now that – Trump is gone or Holly has blown himself up. I don't know who's going to carry that mantle forward, but they better find somebody quick because Biden and the Democrats, they know what they believe and they're pushing hard for it. And uh, they have got to meet some opposition. One thing that frustrates me about Trump is I hold him responsible for the Republicans losing the Senate because of the way he behaved in Georgia, discouraging people from going out to vote. That was crazy. And now we're all going to have to live with that. He is Rod Dreher, senior editor at the American Conservative, theamericanconservative.com, as you just heard him say, is where you can find his blog. Also, pick up his book, Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. Rod, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Of course, the uh, news that came down on uh, Friday and developed over the weekend by appearances on the Sunday talkies was... The article of impeachment uh, that will be delivered to the Senate, uh, the trial set for the week of February 8th. 
Uh, Chuck Schumer providing uh, this uh, compelling argument in support of uh, President Trump's conviction in advance of that trial. Donald John Trump incited the erection. The erection? Insurrection against the United States. Yeah, um, incited the erection. Wow. A Freudian slip, perhaps. Certainly something uh, no one's ever accused Hillary Clinton of inciting. I don't know if uh, Chuck Schumer was uh, hearkening back to the Bill Clinton days of impeachment, maybe, but uh, nonetheless, inciting the uh, insurrection or something akin to that. That uh, turned the conversation to uh, the underlying charges that President Trump made about the administration of the elections. And this was the basis for quite the spirited exchange between Kentucky Senator Rand Paul and Clinton Foundation donor Zero, speaking of Hillary Clinton, Clinton Foundation donor Zero, that would be George Stephanopoulos on this week, because you know, you have to stipulate that the election was not stolen in order to have a conversation with anybody on the left. If you don't do that, then you get excoriated. You have to sign in blood. The election was not stolen. Rand Paul wasn't having it. Take a listen. George, where you make a mistake is that people coming from the liberal side like you, you immediately say everything's a lie instead of saying there are two sides to everything. Historically, what would happen is if I said that I thought there was fraud, you would interview someone else who said there wasn't. But now you insert yourself in the middle and say that the absolute well, fact is that everything I'm saying is a lie. Well, because, say Senator, I said what the president said was a lie because to. he said, hold we're on a second. To. He said the election was stolen. This election was not stolen. This ele- the results were certified in every you're single state was, you're after saying, counts you're and recounts. You're saying that absolutely it was you're saying there was no fraud and it's all been investigated. That's just not true. So it's not what I said, sir. I said the Department of Justice found no, no evidence. Let me, Let me finish. finish my point. No, you say you said lie. something that was you, not true. You say we're all liars. You're just simply saying we're all liars. And I said it was a lie that the election was stolen. Premise that you're right and we're wrong. Well, let, no. Well, let's let's talk about the specifics of it. In Wisconsin, tens of thousands of absentee votes had only the name on them and no address. Historically, those were thrown out this time. They weren't. They made special accommodations because they said, oh, it's a pandemic, and people forgot what their address was. So they changed the law after the fact. That is wrong. That's unconstitutional. And I plan on spending the next two years going around state to state and fixing these problems, and I won't be cowed by liberals in the media who say, there's no evidence here and you're a liar if you talk about election fraud. No, let's have an open debate. It's a free country. I voted to certify the state electors because I think it would be wrong for Congress to overturn that. But at the same time, I'm not willing just to sit here and say, oh, everybody on the Republican side is a liar and there is no fraud. No, there were lots of problems and there were secretaries of state who illegally changed the law and that needs to be fixed. And I'm going to work hard to fix it. Yeah, I mean, see, that's the key, right? The whole the election was installed. And you have to say you have to stipulate to that rather than take the open ended approach that uh, Rand Paul takes, which is to say, I don't know if what occurred had it not, would it have altered the outcome of the election? But why can't we ask questions or raise arguments about how the election was administered, particularly in those states where you had courts intercede and act like legislatures, as was the case in Pennsylvania, or you had administrative agencies and run the legislatures, as you could argue, in Wisconsin and Georgia, for examples. I mean, that, that's not legitimate to say, well, wait a second. Thinking about Wisconsin, I won't use Rand Paul's example, but one that I used from the beginning. This indefinitely confined 
designation that's supposedly supposed to be narrowly tailored that was used to essentially allow anybody who said they were afraid to come out and vote because of COVID-19 to say I'm indefinitely confined and end run the voter ID requirement in Wisconsin. I go back to John Solomon's piece last week, which we discussed. Remember, and this is all like memorialized in a book by former Obama campaign manager David Plouffe. I mean, this is I don't know why this isn't getting more amplification, more traction. By Labor Day, they were already well into rewriting the rules of the election administration in those key states. The left can't have it both way. There's a perfectly reasonable explanation why Joe Biden so wildly outperformed Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama in the metropolitan areas, in the swing states that he needed to have to win those states to win the presidency. It has nothing to do with voter fraud. Okay, well, what is it? One of the arguments is, and there may be a lot of merit to it, although they got help from sort of the agencies or governments that uh, acted outside of their prescribed boundaries. But okay, one of the arguments is that the Democrats took advantage of this unprecedented election. That's another thing that's not emphasized enough. We've never done mail-in balloting on this scale nationally before, and certainly many states didn't do it. So to suggest the election wasn't stolen, all the uh, states were certified. And by the way, Rand Paul made what I voted to certify because I understand what I can and can't do. But, but there's nothing to see here because Barr made sort of a dismissive comment about no evidence of systemic fraud, that there's nothing to see here. This is at the state and local level, and particularly at the time that Barr made it. So, yeah, so nothing had been leveled up to, to him. How aggressive were U.S. attorneys in these jurisdictions in investigating? That's sort of the underlying question. Sure, a pronouncement was made. So what? What was the rigor of the investigation, if any? They focused on those metropolitan areas, expanded the eligibility requirements, perhaps had more aggressive GOTV campaigns to take advantage of the looser regulations with respect to voting. Obviously, you had uh, the underwriting of things like the Zucker boxes for mail ballot drop offs and and more polling places and and drop off boxes in uh, heavy Democrat areas like in Fulton County in Georgia. So, yeah, there's a perfectly reasonable explanation, but that does that still goes back to Rand Paul's point, which is to say we need to look at how the elections were administered and make the case that you can't have administrative agencies or courts usurping the authority of legislatures and legislatures need to exert their power to regulate these things so that you have the less potential for fraud. I also love Stephanopoulos just sort of waving off as he did in that interview. Oh, you know, no election is perfect. Come on. Yes. No, no. Nobody expects perfection. But changing the rules of the game in the in the states in question, which happened to in significant ways that could have impacted, could have impacted the ultimate outcome is not a inconsequential question. And I'm always want to ask, you know, George, who is it? Whose vote is it okay to discard? Who, Who are you fine with disenfranchising in addition to? You know, the dead and people in this country illegally and uh, people who no longer are eligible in the state per the state requirements, no longer live in states and so forth, that there was some evidence of in in the various states. And I I won't go through all the numbers, but you know what I'm talking about. Was that enough to alter the election again? I don't know with respect to the total combination. In some states, clearly, it didn't seem like it was. In other states, it's more of an open question because you change the underlying rules of the game in an unprecedented election And Democrats, hey, they played a strategic game and Republicans played a tactical one and they won. But it doesn't mean that Rand Paul can't say we need to look at the mistakes that were made, the usurpations that occurred 
and talk about how we administer elections that are as close to perfection as possible, that disenfranchise as few as uh, of people as possible, that that to provide the, the least amount of avenues for fraud or irregularities. But Stephanopoulos and the rest of the left just want you to say nothing to see here and essentially marginalize, like Rand Paul implied, as kooks anybody who would suggest anything of the sort. You're not allowed to ask questions anymore. You just accept the stated narrative and repeat it. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. So Dr. Deborah Burke sat down with Margaret Brennan uh, at Face the Nation yesterday for a extended interview. And the uh, parts that uh, the D.C. press corps pick out to amplify are not the most interesting parts. And point of fact, I think the most interesting tell from Deborah Burke's Q&A was uh, this little bit from uh, talking about how things uh, developed from March and April, the, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve to the lockdowns that started. And then the, over the summer, some of the states starting to break with the orthodoxy and begin to open up. Take a listen. I think the White House personnel were very focused on this pandemic in March and April. I think once the country began to open and it was clear to me that they weren't going to follow my really gated criteria that I had worked hard on. How to open restaurants, how to let people I combined all of that together um, for these great gating criteria. So in calculating everything with the slow reopening, I didn't think anyone could get to phase three until August. And you can see in the states that followed either that criteria or a similar criteria, that's how long it took them. Yeah, right. I worked so hard Dr. Jill Biden, I worked so hard on the gating criteria to come up with the uh, answer, uh, you know, me being the Oracle of Delphi, that then should be distributed to all the governors to follow with specificity. This is so interesting because this is the the folly of the expert class, uh, particularly in retrospect. Barton Swain had an excellent piece in The Wall Street Journal over the weekend about Trump and the failure of said expert class. And on COVID, he wrote in part, we are still in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, so it's difficult to write about it with the perspective it demands. Yet political talking points aside, this much is apparent. No nation or anyhow, no nation that values individual liberty and isn't an island has managed even to slow the spread of COVID-19 without causing economic ruin and attendant disorder. Uh, This is not to say that he has no criticisms of the Trump administration decision-making and communication. He does, and they're, I think, largely on point. But he goes on to say, the outstanding failure of the 2020 pandemic was the experts' belief that only sens- the only sensible response involved Deborah Burks's gating criteria, sustained closures of businesses and schools. By any set of criteria outside the self-contained system of public health best practices, the lockdowns failed. They purchased minor slowdowns in the spread of the virus at the cost of punishing economic destruction, untold social dysfunction, 
and mind-blowing public debt. The experts' failure. But there is no accountability for those failures. There is just the response of, well, they didn't follow the gating criteria. Well, this is a, a mutation. Well, we didn't do it big enough. Well, we're not getting enough cooperation. Well, somebody was seen in a position of authority not wearing a mask, and that's what we should all focus on rather than the underlying policies across the board inflicting exactly what Barton Swaim describes. There's something else going on here, too, and I think Theodore Dalrymple gets to it in a, a good piece that he wrote uh, for uh, a Law and Liberty, lawliberty.org is the, is the site. Uh, so let's get to Theodore Dalrymple to have him explain. Theodore Dalrymple, contributing editor of City Journal, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and author of False Positive, A Year of Error, Omission, and Political Correctness in the New England Journal of Medicine. I'll start there and then go back and read all of uh, Theodore Dalrymple's oeuvre. I would highly recommend. Uh, Theodore Dalrymple, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much for asking me. Um, you um, write in your piece about uh, the about pandemic nightmares that um, one of the nightmare, or perhaps one of the um, the the bases of the nightmares, is this um, this imperative that the state believes it has to appear to be doing something, even if it's not doing it, and in this case, saving lives. Uh, yes, well, obviously the uh, politician, I, for the first time in my life, I have some sympathy for the politicians because they didn't get it in the neck, uh, whatever they do. And uh, they can't be uh, seen to be uh, not doing anything when uh, people are dying. Uh, so uh, they have to do something. And, uh, of course, the, I mean, I live in Europe, and the regulations are different in uh, in every country in Europe, and uh, there isn't really justification uh, for many of them, or at least uh, no public uh, justification of them. When we come back with uh, Dr. Theodore Dalrymple, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, politicians' incentives and uh, distinguish between those who took a more forthright approach from those who did not. More with Theodore Dalrymple, contributor to City Journal, right after this. Listen, the more you'll know, this is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with City Journal's Theodore Dalrymple, Dr. Theodore Dalrymple, about uh, politicians' response to COVID-19, the lockdowners versus those that tried to take a more balanced approach, contemplating trade-offs. I want to talk about uh, some of those things politicians did early on uh, versus uh, how they're being vindicated by other politicians objecting to those things early on. And now is to say, you know, here's what we know and here's what we're trying to figure out. And one of the things that we know is we can't bend nature to our will. We have to try to achieve a balanced approach based on the best, albeit imperfect information we have. We need to learn to live with this as we've lived with other viral outbreaks in human history. That's what some politicians, a few said, and have been consistent in opposing these strict cookie-cutter lockdowns. 
while others now who were supporters of those strict cookie-cutter lockdowns, I'm thinking of the governor of New York, the mayor of Chicago, now are coming around to the reality of the human condition that we do need to learn to live with these things if you want to live in a free society and combat them in a way that uh, takes trade-offs into account. Yes, well, we don't t- uh, take trade-offs I- into account, and the politicians have to look at the uh, headlines and what is being said on social media and so on. Very few politicians who are in power have, the, uh, have uh, at any rate, from the beginning said, we have to trade off possibly death against the economic and social destruction. The nearest who have come to it are the Swedes, and they have, in fact, had more deaths than their near neighbours, Denmark, uh, Finland, Norway, which are very comparable countries. But if, uh, say, a British or a French politician said, well, we have to face the fact that people are going to die, but we can't just close the whole economy down because of that, I think there would be a terrible outcry. Well, I mean, you know, just pick pick your outcry, I suppose. I wanted to get to one one other premise here, get your assessment of this, particularly as a psychiatrist. Going back to Barton Swaim's piece in the Wall Street Journal that I was referencing, he writes, controlling the spread of COVID-19 in the U.S. was always going to be a messy business. Many infected people don't get sick and have no compelling reason to burrow in their homes. And America is an unruly nation with a long tradition of nonconformity. These experts might have accounted for these realities. Part of this is the suspension of disbelief, because not only do these politicians pretend they, they can bend nature to its will, that they believe they can change man, change the innate nature of man through state policy. Yes, well, I mean, the fact is, of course, that uh, it was clear from fairly early on that the vast majority of the population had very little, really, to fear from this uh, virus, and only certain groups had something to fear, the, the very old people like me, in fact. So, uh, but the politicians felt they couldn't make different policies for different groups of people. I mean, as soon as anyone suggested there should be a differential between the way very old people and uh, young people are uh, treated, uh, were immediately accused of uh, trying to institute apartheid, uh, which, of course, is ridiculous because the difference in uh, the suggested way in which people were treated uh, was based on, on real evidence and real dangers. Uh, but anyway, that that is just one of the problems that the, the politicians face, that uh, uh, if they suggest such a thing, the specific uh, measures uh, that affect some people much more than others, uh, they're cried down. But uh, you write in your piece, though, you know, that's sort of um, uh, a self-delusion uh, or a rationalization because... Those lives that uh, uh, the people believe they're saving, either if they're a politician instituting lockdown policies or if they're somebody wearing a mask and shaming their neighbors to do the same in their daily lives. Many of them, I mean, they don't really value those lives, those other lives. They, and in point of fact, they support all sorts of policies that devalue uh, those lives, particularly as you go up the age demographic. So, I mean, part of this is all just performance art, and not just in the security measures, but in terms of the, the genuine concern for one's fellow man. Yes, well, uh, that is true. But uh, we live in an age, uh, one could say, uh, it's an age of logocracy. And logocracy. So what you say is actually the most important aspect of your whole morality. And where that is the case, the, the content and the meaning are are relatively unimportant. So we have people uh, who are very uh, virtuous um, in their words, 
uh, but do nothing. Uh, and they are deemed good. Oh, yes. Yes, no, there's no question about that. Um, you, you, uh, again, leaning on your per, uh, expertise uh, in medicine as a psychiatrist, uh, stories out uh, the last week or so about school districts that are reopening in part because they're finally starting to get um, the message about how uh, destructive keeping kids in relative isolation has been, both in terms of mental health as well as in terms of the worst outcomes, meaning suicides, not to mention the uh, the, the, the spike in uh, opioid overdose deaths around the country, again, headlines over the last several weeks. And I, I wonder how long you think that the tale might be with respect to the psychology of, of young people in particular, sort of of school age and of, of the culture in general, how, how long uh, the um, uh, the safetyism and the, 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 the people who are sort of addled by fear will last. It has this, this episode over the last year and, and ongoing, you know, fundamentally altered the course of Western civilization for some time to come. Well, I, I can't quite make up my mind about this because, of course, people are capable of amnesia is a great force. So people are capable of uh, forgetting things very quickly. And if you talk to the young in, uh, in uh, or people who lived through 10 or 15 years of communism, they've forgotten about it already and no one tells them about it. Um, and the safetyism that you refer to, I mean, this is an extreme form of the safetyism there is, but there is uh, there's a safetyism uh, that preceded this. This just doesn't come out of nothing. Uh, we, uh, I mean, I once counted on an escalator in Sydney, Australia, uh, six warnings about how to go up an escalator <laughs> safely. <laughs> Yes. And unfortunately, they were all at the bottom, so I nearly fell off while I was trying to do them. <laughs> Well, thank God you survived that escalator ride. Yes, <laughs> yeah, but uh, I suppose fear is inversely proportional to its real causes or reason for fear. Uh, Theodore Dalrymple, contributing editor of City Journal, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and author of False Positive, A Year of Error, Omission, and Political Correctness in the New England Journal of Medicine. Dr. Dale Ripple, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's hard to align my good intentions My head's full of things that I can't mention Seems I usually get these out But I can't understand what I did last Listen to podcasts of the show at danprofshow.com Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, the uh, Bernie Mittens memes. Have you seen the Bolshevik Bernie Mittens memes? Of course you have. This has uh, become uh, the thing that was trending uh, most on the web over the weekend, wasn't it? And social media. Uh, Bernie Sanders wrapped in his coat with his mask and his uh, hand-sewn Vermont mittens. Well, uh, the uh, woman who made those mittens, who's a school teacher in Vermont, uh, after they went viral and all the memes, I, I must have gotten two dozen, each more graphic than the la- than the, than the latter. She uh, gave an interview to Slate magazine, and uh, the kicker for this whole Bolshevik Bernie mitten meme isn't uh, the creative memes out there. Although there are some that are very good, 
It's what she had to say. <laughs> this is great. She uh, said um, that I, I don't have any more mittens. People are contacting me thinking that they can get mittens. They actually can't. I don't have any more. I don't have much of a mitten business anymore because it really wasn't worth it. Independent crafters really get taken for a ride by the federal government. We get taxed to the nth degree, and it wasn't really worth it pursuing that as a business, even as a side hustle. I mostly just make them as gifts. <laughs> and by the way, she is a Bernie supporter. She's a Bolshevik Bernie supporter, somebody else who believes that uh, the economy can be run on, uh, run on Vermont maple syrup and apparently mittens. But I just love the uh, disconnect, the inability to connect the dots. Getting taxed to the nth degree wasn't pursuing a business as a side hustle, so just stick with the teaching. Uh, and yet she is an avowed supporter of an avowed socialist. Uh, and something else, uh, just <laughs> this sort of weird fascination people have with septuagenarian political hacks. How about a rap song in honor of Janet Yellen, the incoming Treasury Secretary, former Fed Board Chairman? on the left, hawks on the right, cross talk in the flock, trying to fight mid-flight. But here comes yelling with that inside voice. Never mind the mild manner, policies make noise. She's five foot nothing, but hands to God. She could pop a collar, she could rock a power bob. Bay Ridge represent Brooklyn's in the cabinet. Damn, Janet, go and get it. Fifth and for president. She knows the kind of stimulus it takes to pass a buck. She's qualified. It only took a couple centuries. The first female secretary of the treasury. There's busted glass. Janet broke another ceiling. You can bet your brass that the Lego guy is leaving. Let's check to cash. And Janet, Janet, she's the first that's led the Council of Economic Advisors. Treasuring the Fed, she needs a three-sided coin that always comes up heads to put the triple crown down when she goes to bed. Call the decorators, new boss in the office. Spenders and the savers watch the confirmation process. We got to meet her, now let's let her settle in. And lift up your mojitos, cause she manages the mint. It's not bad. The lyrics are actually kind of funny. But you know what? I'll stick with uh, Remy over at Reason.com. This is Dan Brock. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com, at Dan Proft, and at Dan Proft Show on social media. Megan Kelly. Uh, made a little news over the weekend in a BBC interview. Maybe she's trying to get back in good with uh, Fox or reestablish a brand or something. I don't know. This is what she had to say about um, the D.C. press corps and what happened on January 6th. Take a listen. They, they hated him so much they checked their objectivity. And it wasn't just CNN. All of them did. They just couldn't check their own personal feelings about him. Either that or they signed on to what I call the Jorge Ramos theory of covering Trump. Um, he was at Univision, and he advocated prior to Trump's election that we needed to cover him differently, that you needed to outwardly call him a racist, sexist, misogynist, all of it, uh, and that that was important for history. And I think too many journalists agreed with that at their own peril. That Part of the reason we saw what happened 
on the Capitol here two weeks ago was because there's been a yeah. complete lack of trust, destruction of trust in the media, and people don't know where to turn for true information. Uh, almost a suggestion that uh, the D.C. press corps coverage was, I don't want to say incited, but was impactful in terms of people's frustration, some people's frustrations boiling over to the point of lawlessness. And uh, Matt Taibbi writes about this a bit at his uh, blog at Substack, and he says, oh, the trust in media is an all-time low, and that's just dismissed as, well, that's because conservatives dislike the traditional media. But that's true, but it's not the whole story. 18% of Republicans reported supporting reported trusting media, according to an Axios uh, story and and the survey that they referenced. But 57 percent of Democrats trust the media. And Tabby writes, you know, 57 percent of half your potential audience is nothing to brag about when you're in the trust business. Right. (laughs) That actually turns out to be a problem, too, even despite the disparity between Republicans and Democrats on the trust question. For more on this and a couple of other matters, we're pleased to be joined by David Marcus, New York correspondent for The Federalist, Federalist.com, contributor to The New York Post as well. David, thanks for joining us. Anytime. Um, what about uh, that, uh, speaking as a, a member of the press corps, but not probably one that's welcome to in those circles that we're discussing? What, what about what uh, sort of the combination of Megyn Kelly and Taibbi is saying about the state of media? I don't trust this. I, I'm sympathetic to what Megyn said because I do think that there were a lot of factors, and I do think that there was absolutely no excuse uh, for the horrible actions at the U.S. Capitol. But I didn't imagine a federal courthouse in Portland being under siege for a month. These things happened. And I don't know, if, if, if I had been in, in that situation in, in the Capitol, having looked at what happened all summer, I might have thought to myself, well, I've, I've been watching this happen all summer. And CNN says it's peaceful. That's not an excuse. But I do think that Megan's condemnation of the media is warranted. I think Taibbi is right as well. It's just amazing to me. You know, I wrote a column this morning about the situation where the New York Times had fired an editor purportedly for sending a tweet that said she got chill seeing Joe Biden. Now, they say it's deeper than that, but that seems to have been what triggered the firing. And the point I made is the, the problem isn't any individual at the New York Times. The problem is the New York Times. They don't tell the truth. Uh, and people and they and they have bias. Right. They pretend they don't have bias. But it's very clear that they do. And the American people aren't stupid. And I think that's the biggest issue is that the media, the politicians, the elites in general really do think that the American people are stupid. Right. We had the state of California say just the other day, well, we're not releasing the coronavirus data because. It could be misinterpreted by right. the people. That's it, right. it might mislead them. Well, who are you to do that? How, I'm not your child. How, how different is that than Tony Fauci telling the New York Times, you know, I'm going to parcel out uh, what I think is the threshold number right. for herd immunity as, as I think the American people can handle it. I, it, it. It's exactly the same. And I'm free to do that with my 10-year-old son. I don't tend to, right? Because even my 10-year-old son, I would prefer in general to know the truth about things. But the state of California and, and Tony Fauci and the New York Times ought not be doing that in regard to the American people. Well, and, and one other thing, too, just on this, you know, going back to uh, how uh, the, un- the unrest and the violence uh, throughout America was treated over the summer into the fall, into the present. Uh, Andy No, who has been Johnny on the spot in Portland for the last mm-hmm. year and, and Seattle and elsewhere, 
and documenting Antifa, since uh, some members of Antifa almost killed him last summer. The Antifa rioting that was going on in, in Portland and Seattle, Twitter didn't do anything to stop the planning of that that was happening online with those Twitter accounts, too. So it's not even looking retrospectively. It's it's watching in real time as there is one standard applied here and another standard applied there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what it feels like more than anything else is a social credit system. Senator Josh Howley has the cover story of today's New York Post writing about this very thing, that these corporations now are going to monitor your beliefs, are going to monitor your ideology. It's very scary stuff. And the left will stand on their soapbox and say, this isn't censorship because it's not the government. That's nonsense. Censorship is censorship. It doesn't matter if this is coming from the government or this is coming from, you know, these gigantic corporations. The result is the same. I I wanted to get to this other piece that you wrote about Mitch McConnell, him needing to go. It's very interesting what's happened in GOP ranks and get your perspective on it. You had Liz Cheney be censured by uh, one county party in Wyoming and, and facing at least one primary opponent already. Arizona Republicans moved to censure both Cindy McCain and Governor Doug Ducey. But meanwhile, you have Mitt Romney saying if we're going to have unity, there must be accountability. And he means accountability in the form of convicting the president of dereliction of duty, as it were. It's interesting that Romney wants accountability there, but not for the expert class and all of everything that they have gotten wrong, catastrophically so, uh, across the spectrum. Or done perhaps unethically, if not illegally, in places like the FBI and CIA. But nonetheless, accountability is Mitt Romney's watchword. And uh, you have some Republican parties uh, attaching accountability to their home state Republicans. And Mitch McConnell seeming to be in liege with Mitt Romney, at least rhetorically to this point. It looks like potentially we're headed for a real schism, one that's even deeper and, and wider than it is at present. Yeah, look, I think McConnell and Cheney and Romney are all making the same mistake. It's a mistake also that unfortunately a lot of conservative journalists are making, which is that they really think that support for Donald Trump was based solely on this cult of personality. Right. And McConnell's been clear that he wants to sort of excise Trump from the party. What they don't understand is that it's not about the individual person, Donald Trump. It's about a whole host of issues having to do, you know, everything from trade to immigration to not getting into new foreign wars. I mean, there's a whole platform of issues where he really transformed the party. And the voters aren't going to go back to the 30 years that they had, you know, elite GOP politicians saying, we don't share your values, we don't share your beliefs, we don't put you first, but we're better than Democrats, so you have no choice. Trump proved that they do have a choice. McConnell saw an opportunity here to shame those voters into getting back on the old establishment GOP farm. And thus far, the voters are saying, no, we won't. And that's why McConnell apparently can't muster the votes to convict the president. And that's going to put a lot of egg on his face because, you know, the old saying, you shoot at the king, you better not miss. Yeah, the, the, the thing that's curious about Mitch McConnell, you know, he, this because if he's just a political animal and he just wants to be Senate Majority Leader, then how does pursuing this path set him and set the Republicans up to retake control of the Senate, uh, much less the House, in 2022? I, I just don't see how one leads to the other in his mind. Everybody is confused by this, right? Like I, the people that I've talked to in D.C., you know, who had the ear of senators, you know, people like Rick Scott really do not understand 
what McConnell's doing here or why. I can't get in his head, uh, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to them. He is David Marcus, New York correspondent for The Federalist, federalist.com, contributor to New York Post as well. David, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Well, speaking of the culture war, 2021 is already off to a disturbing start for conservatives. We've seen Twitter unilaterally shut down President Trump's account. The conservative platform Parler was booted off the App Store by Apple. And big tech is muzzling free speech at a speed that nobody could have predicted. Nobody except biologist and evolutionary theorist Brett Weinstein, who appeared in the film No Safe Spaces to issue this warning about political correctness running amok. If this is allowed to continue, it is going to work its way into the entire apparatus of government, journalism, maybe most seriously into the tech sector, which has become the governance apparatus for the new public square. YouTube and Google, Facebook and Twitter dictate whose voices can be heard. And if those entities start trying to engineer the conversation to adhere to the rules laid out with these phony Trojan horse terms, disaster will be the result. You need to see the full movie No Safe Spaces today. Just go to SalemNow.com and download your copy of No Safe Spaces or order the DVD. It's fast, easy to do, and you and your family need to see this important film now before any more of our freedoms are muzzled. Again, go to SalemNow.com and get your copy of No Safe Spaces. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. One of the things that uh, Biden spoke of at his inaugural address, you'll recall, was how we're going to restore America's standing in the world, rebuild our relationships with our allies. How's that going? Here's Alberta Premier Jason Kenney on Biden's preemptory cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline. The biggest part of that trade is Canadian energy exports, largely from uh, our province here of Alberta. We have the third largest oil reserves in the world. We ship about nearly $100 billion worth of energy to the U.S. every year. Keystone XL would have been a a significant, uh, safe, modern uh, increase in that shipment. Um, And it is very uh, it's very frustrating that one of the first acts of the new president was, I think, to disrespect America's closest friend and ally Canada um, and uh, to kill uh, good paying union jobs on both sides of the border and ultimately to make the United States more dependent on foreign oil imports from OPEC dictatorships. We don't understand it. And at the very least, we believe that uh, those who've invested in this project, trusting in the regulatory process in the U.S., should be compensated by the U.S. administration. Oh, off to a slow start in terms of, uh, you know, Feeling the era of good feelings with our uh, allies, including our neighbors to the great white north. We'll start there with Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, vice president of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation, author of books including Wiki at War and Private Sector Public Wars. Jim, thanks for joining us. Hey, good to be with you. Uh, so what what about that? The disrespectful to uh, the Canadians. Uh, that's um, not the uh, lovey-doveyness we expected from uh Uh, that that we expected the Biden administration to bring to the world? Well, you know, it's more than that. It's it's bad science. It's bad economics. It's bad foreign policy. And it's actually anti-truth. 
So it's it's almost a poster child for all the things the Biden administration promised they, they weren't going to be. It's, it is really bad science. From the, so we have a pipeline that, that's about a half a billion barrels. So the Exxon would have doubled that moving. That oil's still probably going to come to the United States because that's the most efficient place to take it. It's, it's going to come in tankers, which means that the, the CO2 emissions will be infinitely greater. So it's actually bad. It's a bad decision for the environment. It makes terrible economics. Um, all you're doing is because oil is a fungible global commodity. If you make Canadian American energy more expensive, all that means is you're making you know people like Russia and Venezuela's energy cheaper, and you're making people more dependent on less reliable sources of energy. It's, of course, terrible um, foreign policy. And, and the reality is it's a policy that's not good for the environment or for energy. So it really only pleases the most progressive, radical environmental activists who think that if if we just cut off all the sources of oil and gas, that's how we're going to make the transition to green energy. When even the people that really endorse the transition to green energy argue that you have to have a, a transition between fossil fuels and green energy, and things like the XL pipeline actually facilitate that transition. So it's hard to – I mean, I don't know why they did this because they didn't explain it, which apparently – was, I guess, not part of being bipartisan and being president for all Americans. They just did it. But it seems hard to find any other explanation that, that this is just a policy to please the most radical environmental activists. There's one more There's one more kicker to this, too, which is uh, uh, a, a Native American tribe in Utah sent a pretty angry letter to the Department of Interior, not about Keystone uh, XL specifically, but about the... Um, uh, the executive order that uh, temporarily halts leases and permits for energy development on federal land. So now he, he can't even uh, keep, uh, you know, some of what ostensibly would be his constituents, you know, playing woke politics, identity politics. He's got a Utah Native American tribe not too pleased with him on this energy policy gambit as well. Right. They would be, but it's not nearly as efficient and cost effective. And, and it actually increases greenhouse gases. So it's because eventually, you, if you do railroads, you still got to transit that to a tanker at some point, and the and the transit times are going to be longer for the railroads than they would be from a from a pipeline. So, you know, it, the, I think the biggest issue here from an environmental and energy policy standpoint is is how do you make a transition to greener energies? And the answer is you make energy more affordable, you make economies more wealthy and more efficient. And you facilitate the evolution of technology and infrastructure. All this does is it makes us poorer and more vulnerable. It's a terrible, terrible policy decision. Well, and and on the score of energy independence um, and and economic vitality, those two scores, I suppose, the news over the weekend that China has now taken over the United States as, as the world's top destination for new foreign direct investment. They did that last year. Uh, uh, now supplanting the United States as the most attractive place for capital to locate. Um, what are the implications of that? Well, I, th- I think the problem is the more investment there is in China from foreign companies and the more companies are in such entangled with China, the more dependent they are on them. And, and, and the more dominant China's position is technology, but they aren't secret about that. I actually wrote a book about this back in, I think 2006 or something. And I went back and looked at it where and the Chinese said, you know, over a decade ago, their goal is information dominance, and they're going to achieve that through dominating digital and other forms of infrastructure. 
um, they look at information as kind of the world's new nuclear weapons. And facilitating and speeding that process of Chinese dominance actually definitely puts the United States in a more vulnerable position in the long term. And the only way, to, here's the deal, the only way to really compete with that is to make the American economy more attractive to invest in. Things like making energy in America more expensive, that does the exact opposite of making America an attractive destination for foreign investment. I, I, let's talk about that just for a, a second longer, because I uh, was referred to a development economist named Albert Hirschman, who wrote this interesting perspective on Germany in the run-up to World War II. And he, and he wrote in 1941 that Germany was neither a free trader nor a protectionist. It was a power trader. Use trade as a key to gain commercial and military advantage over its adversaries. And the argument is that's what China is doing. It's not free trade or protectionism. We look, we're looking at it the wrong way. It's power trading to gain commercial or military advantages. So it's sort of individually specific. It's context specific. But the play is power. It is not ideological in terms of free trade to grow the economy versus protectionism to protect industries. That's not the, what they're doing. I, I think that's a, an accurate, you know, I, uh, I have a PhD in history. That's, a, I think, an accurate both economic and, and historical assessment. And you know, in the end, the United States was able to dominate in World War II simply because we had the world's most innovative, free, and powerful economy. And the policies that that are not building on the strengths of our economy, like making us more energy dependent, making energy more expensive, limiting companies' abilities to innovate and grow, um, not challenging China. The, you don't want a level playing field with China in great power competition. The early market of the Biden policies, is that's exactly what it looks like they're trying to do. He is Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, VP at the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks as always. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, guys. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Going back to something we were touching upon a little bit earlier in the show with Rod Dreher, uh, one of Joe Biden's executive orders reinstituting uh, race, racial uh, political indoctrination for the federal workforce, something that President Trump had banned. And uh, Andrew Sullivan, man on the left, not a Trump fan, uh, writing about uh, this. Biden is enforcing the Ibram Kendi view that the only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. And he's enforcing it across the entire federal government and any institution the federal government funds. To show he's serious, he's appointed Susan Rice to enforce equity in a whole-of-government approach, America is no longer about individual freedom. It's about identity group power and its constant management by government. Well, over the weekend on uh, Bill Maher's show on HBO, Politically Incorrect of all places, he actually had um, a pretty sharp podcaster named Kameli Foster, 
who uh, helped the audience understand the difference between equity and equality. They are not synonyms. Take a listen to Kameli Foster. Towards equity, racial equity, and a focus disproportionately on outcomes is something that is rather new, but seems to have taken the country by storm. It's, and, it's yeah, almost the only thing people can talk about. Equity meaning as opposed to equality. Equity as opposed to equality. Which can you? I can give you a practical example of that. Yes. COVID, we were just talking about a moment ago. We know that the most vulnerable population when it comes to COVID are older people. That if I took people over the age of 55, sure. that's 80% of the deaths. There have been actual conversations about prioritizing people on the basis of their race because COVID is said to disproportionately impact black people relative to white people. It is a ridiculous proposition, but it's a proposition that's found its way into the mouths of governors here in California, the, the pages of the New York Times. We're actively Why talking about this kind though? of ridiculous because we actually know when we look at the global impact of COVID in the United States, again, 80% of the people who are dying are older, around 18% of the people who are dying are black. A life lost to COVID is a life that matters. And we can focus on the people who are vulnerable without making this about race. Making it about race only obscures the actual issue. If you separate separate race from economic insecurity, sure, right? Like like Hispanics are hospitalized at three, four times the rate of white people for a variety of reasons. For a variety of They're essential workers. They're riding the bus from Boyle Heights to Beverly Hills. The important point is that it's not fundamentally about race. You can't un-Hispanic them. There may be different issues in their communities. It could be that they live in, in homes with more people. It could be that they live in more urban centers. If that's the case, the policy you're tailoring is for people in urban centers, not Latinos. This is a confusion of categories that is actually distracting us from forging good policy. What you get is great sound bites. You right. don't actually fix problems. It always it, yeah. it, it makes people great sound bites. <laughs> great sound bites. You don't actually fix problems. Yeah, that was a great distillation by that uh, podcaster, Camille Foster. Equity versus equality. Uh, rinse and repeat it in your circles of influence. Uh, the woke temple on Twitter. Uh, has uh, a couple of other succinct explanations or uh, useful examples, maybe, that drive the point home, the point that Kameli Foster was making and others. James Lindsay, we've talked about with critical race theory, Christopher Rufo, who's done great work on the topic. Uh, the Woke Temple's tweet over the weekend, I'm for ending cancer. You are either anti-cancer or pro-cancer. My anti-cancer plan involves leeches and bloodletting. You're against my plan? Then you're not anti-cancer, you're pro-cancer. Hey, everybody, this guy is pro-cancer. That's how to understand Ibram Kendi's anti-racism. I'm for ending cancer, but I don't agree with your plan. Therefore, you're pro-cancer. And then shout it out. Everybody, this guy's pro-cancer. Ostracize him. That's the way they do. Because it's an intellectual fraud. Another... uh, multiple choice to hopefully drive this home. You're a scholar. You come up with a new theory. Somebody disagrees with your theory. What should you do? A, defend your theory. B, address your critics' questions. C, address your critics' disagreement using reason, logic, data, and science. D, attack the race and motives of your critic. And so what is done by the critical race theorists, by these academic and intellectual frauds? By these race hustlers, 
You disagree with me because you're a white person suffering from white fragility. You disagree because you are a black man in enacting whiteness. You disagree because you're a black woman suffering from false consciousness. That's what it is. And this is winning the day. This is winning the day. Stunning, isn't it? The Dan Proft Show. Cause they got the beat, the campus beat, the campus beat. Yeah, the campus beat. Yeah, and uh, building off our discussion before the break. Some examples that don't require a federal executive order, presidential executive order, uh, that don't involve federal employees talking about the uh, political identitarian indoctrination based on race and the other identitarian groupings. Uh, so there are many examples of this ongoing in universities, as, as they have been for some time, getting uh, more intolerant. There will be more professional casualties, and this will be the model for more private sector enterprises to take up as corporate America has already taken this up and uh, some religious institutions and many cultural institutions, arts, sports. Give you an example of what I mean. University of Illinois, Chicago law professor under fire for an exam question on his Civ Pro 2 exam, Civ Pro 2 final exam, a question he's been using apparently for many years, but uh, now has come under uh, a, a new set of, standards when it comes to scrutiny. Jason Kilborn is the law professor in question. He used a redacted reference to a racial slur on a final exam, and now he is facing the mob, of course. Civ Pro 2 final exam, which describes a hypothetical employment discrimination case or scenario. This is the, the question. Employer's lawyer traveled to meet the manager who stated that she quit her job at employer after she attended a meeting in which other managers expressed their anger at plaintiff, calling her a N blank and B blank, profane expressions for African-Americans and women, in parentheses, and vowed to get rid of her. And so, you know, then the question obviously implicates, you know, make out a case for potential employment discrimination. No, <laughs> don't make it out because one student uh, on seeing the sentence became incredibly upset as uh, chronicled by Andrew Koppelman in the Chronicle of Higher Education on the case, experienced heart palpitations, right? Words are violence, safe space. The Black Law Students Association went to the law school dean and to the central administration, demanding that Professor Kilborn be stripped of his committee assignments, denounced him on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter, and filed a complaint with UIC's Office for Access and Equity. Yeah. And so now... Uh, FIRE, Foundation for uh, Individual Rights and in Education, is involved trying to raise the flag of academic freedom. Academic freedom grants faculty members substantial breathing room to determine how to approach subjects and materials relevant to their courses, how to approach those materials 
is a question left for the faculty member of the classroom, not the administrator, donor, legislator, or authorities outside of it, and so on and so forth. Um, the obvious response, uh, by the way, he has been, Professor Kilborn, uh, suspended on an interim basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, I mean, you know, using N blank or B blank is offensive on a law school exam. I mean, I wonder if this same law student would be so aghast, so despondent, so threatened, the heart palpitations and whatnot, had it been in the form of a rap song instead. That's an example. Loyola University of Chicago has announced plans to every ac- have every academic department perform a racial justice examine. Examine is like a devotional exercise involving reflection on moral a reflection on and moral evaluation of one's thoughts and conduct. This is uh, particularly popular among Jesuits. Loyola is a Jesuit school, sort of. Racial justice examine. Every academic department perform it. Moral evaluation of one's thoughts and conduct. So that uh, Loyola can create a safe, respectful, and inclusive environment for students, staff, and faculty of color. It's so interesting to me that uh, these institutions start from the premise that they're systemically racist. Well, if they're systemically racist, why don't we start at the top and just do a real house cleaning? Who wants to raise their hand for that? As opposed to these uh, self-flagellating examines or training seminars. No, nobody wants to raise their hand from that. And by the way, um, the uh, Kilbourne example of the University of Illinois, Chicago, points up something that Jason Whitlock recently wrote and um, and said uh, on Tucker Carlson's show last week. He uh, compared Black Lives Matter to the KKK. Jason Whitlock, who's a black journalist, we've talked about him many times on the show. He's been writing a lot on this topic in recent months, and it's been very good. He was a standout college athlete, too, high school athlete, college athlete. He uh, defended his analogizing Black Lives Matter to the Ku Klux Klan. Black Lives Matter and Antifa protesters have primarily terrorized and destroyed property in black communities at night. BLM and Antifa have attempted to intimidate white, intimidate white Republicans. BLM protests have been violent and caused the assassination of law enforcement officers and other citizens. BLM is a cleverly marketed slogan and provides cover for extremists to undermine racial progress and bully Americans to support Democrat politicians. It's not a coincidence that BLM riots pick up during an election cycle and disappear after the votes have been counted. He goes on, my... Analogy is not far-fetched or hard to comprehend, particularly for the mainstream media. My analogy is far more substantive and accurate than pretending the events on the Capitol on January 6th were an armed insurrection analogous to Pearl Harbor and 9-11. BLM, founded by self-described trained Marxists, has a stated goal of disrupting Western civilization's traditions and values. BLM acts as a racial divider no different from the KKK. It's my belief that the KKK and BLM share the same intent. They use race, intimidation, violence, property destruction to achieve political goals on behalf of the Democratic Party. In the KKK's heyday, a black man could have his life destroyed for making eye contact with a white woman. In BLM's heyday, a black man can have his life destroyed for expressing an opinion that contradicts the ideology of white liberals. He argues it's just technological changes and cultural changes. KKK used to burn crosses. BLM burns buildings. Social media lynch mobs destroy a person's character, strike fear, and silence dissent, as opposed to physical lynch mobs and the social media lynch mobs or uh, those in a you could find in a law school classroom, you know, equate to the the physical lynching to, you know, the uh, to, 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 to anything that they receive as a threat. The whole I'm not safe. Words are violence. Right. 
the words you use have to pass the Twitter test of how they're received by somebody. That's the basis of your allowance to use them. Not what they actually mean, what they were intended, or the context, but how they're received, no matter how ridiculous, no matter how baseless. Yeah, interesting comparison from Whitlock. Uh, he is uh, one of those really standing and delivering relentlessly and fearlessly. Uh, and, uh, boy, I'll tell you, there's a lot of professors and professionals around the country who should be thanking Jason Whitlock for trying to you know, rally others to be as courageous as he has been. Profshow.com. Welcome back to the show and uh, continuing this thread of courage, uh, ending the last segment talking about uh, Jason Whitlock. Here's the opposite of that, the Chicago Teachers Union and uh, teachers around the country via their thuggish unions that continue to uh, resist returning to the classroom regardless of uh, the terms of their employment. They just negotiate the terms after the fact. They're in charge of these school systems. Before I get to Chicago Teachers Union and their spectacular, spectacularly absurd offering over the weekend even as uh, they voted to not return to school today, as was the deal. And, of course, what's the city doing, city of Chicago? Negotiating for a position of weakness, trying to get them back rather than holding them to account. I hope the kids are taking a lesson from this. If you have power, then you don't have to abide your word. If you have power, then you don't have to conform to the agreement you signed. You can just make up the rules as you go along. That's the lesson. And you can also lie about it. You can say you're doing something selflessly for somebody else when you're doing something selfishly for yourself. Related story, Las Vegas schools to reopen. Surge of student suicides pushes Las Vegas schools to open. Since schools shut their doors in March, an early warning system that monitors students' mental health episodes has sent more than 3,100 alerts to district officials raising alarms about suicidal thoughts, possible self-harm, or cries for care. By December of last year, 18 students had taken their own lives. Tell me again about it's just lives versus livelihoods. This is Chicago Teachers Union agitprop over the weekend enlisting their woefully poor dance instructors to offer this ingsoc-worthy propaganda. Make it make sense. Safety is essential. Keep our students and our teachers safe. Safe. And just so I'm not accused of saying uh, anything other than uh, the basis for which this montage of dancers offered this from their uh, Twitter feed. Six of our rank and file dance teachers come together to use their art form as a voice to express their desire to feel safe amidst CPS's teacher return policy. 
They stand in solidarity with all educators at risk because no one should have to choose between life and livelihood. And then just the repetition, the safety, safety is essential. Keep our student and teacher safe, safety, 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 till it bores a hole in your head and removes your gray matter. There is no more cynical institution in America today than urban teachers unions. And Chicago is right there at the bottom or right there at the top is the worst, depending on how you want to rank them. This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And a good piece by uh, Tony Mills and uh, Mark Mills uh, over at... uh, American Enterprise Institute uh, uh, about this. Uh, I read a National Review about Operation Warp Speed. I was having this conversation with a friend over the weekend uh, talking about um, uh, other neurological diseases and just uh, other diseases generally that uh, if there was an Operation Warp Speed devoted to sort of a, a progression of the diseases that are the most devastating, that afflict the most people, could we not achieve what uh, we've been able to achieve with respect to other diseases, uh, what we've achieved with COVID-19. And that's sort of the topic of uh, this piece, COVID-19 vaccines and overnight success decades in the making, as most quote-unquote overnight successes are. For more on this, pleased to be joined by Tony Mills, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and senior fellow at the Pepperdine University's School of Public Policy, the Pepperdine Waves. Tony Mills, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So uh, the uh, vaccines that were... Uh, Overnight successes, decades in the making. Uh, explain. Yeah, well, I think the first thing to say, of course, is that the timeline of the vaccines is really astonishing. It sort of defies the received wisdom about how long it takes to develop these kinds of medical inventions. And, you know, we're talking under a year. But I think to get a fuller picture on how that was possible, it's important to look at what the antecedents were. And what's clear here is that we had decades of research, and a lot of that research was truly scientific research as opposed to research directed at inventing a particular technology like a mRNA vaccine. So when we have crises and we need government to act quickly in cooperation with the private sector to do something like this, I think the lesson is that what we need to also have is this kind of reservoir of scientific knowledge and scientific research that takes years and years to really develop. And so um, there's no question. And so it also seems to me, without um, going back to some of the rank prioritization of other diseases, that um, there's some other lessons to be learned from everything that has transpired from Operation Warp Speed now to the deployment of the vaccine. Were we ever able to do or, or demanded to do something on this scale again? Some ethical questions as well as logistical questions, uh, you know, feasibility questions about the deployment of something on this scale and, you know, prioritization of based on what we know about who's most uh, vulnerable, the enlisting of private sector infrastructure, as opposed to you know, sort of relying on uh, central command structures, government structures to deploy something like this. You know, other things that maybe are, are takeaways, even as we're living through this in real time. 
Absolutely. And really the focus of our piece is looking at the underlying scientific and technological innovations. And there's no question that the larger project of not just inventing, developing, scaling and deploying, but administering this vaccine uh, and grappling with all those ethical, political, practical and logistical challenges is not trivial. But it is striking without downplaying those challenges in any way. Uh, it is striking that, in retrospect, that would prove to be the most difficult part rather than the development of a vaccine in such short order, um, something that, uh, you know, before it happened might have seemed like an impossible timeline. Uh, but you're absolutely right that, it, you know, the invention of, of, in this case, a vaccine is far from the end of the story. Um, and there's a lot to be said, a lot to learn about how we can uh, handle a large-scale problem like this, um, hopefully more effectively in the future. Then, So how do we be, you know, sort of uh, as effective as we can be with scarce resources like money and scientific expertise? There have been stories in the recent weeks about uh, the prospect of real progress in, with respect to a, a cure for MS. There's been talk of... Uh, uh, development of a drug for dementia that sort of revitalizes parts of the brain that have gone dormant. I mean, how, you know, do we do we think about this based on the number of Americans or the number of human beings worldwide impacted, the severity, the you know, how, how, how do we prioritize those scarce resources to try to uh, solve uh, other mysteries with respect to curing ailments? I think the temptation will be coming out of this to look at the timeline of the invention of this vaccine and say, wow, you know, if we could do that in under a year, surely we can do that in any other domain to solve any other kind of problem. And so the temptation will be to say, let's have another Operation Warp Speed to solve problem X or problem Y. The point isn't that that doesn't necessarily work, but the, the question that we have to ask is why were we able to do this? And we're looking at other historical precedents for doing uh, comparable kinds of things like during World War II, inventing radar and, and the atom bomb and so on. And if we ask why, I think what we, what we find out is that often these kinds of inventions come from, as I said before, decades of scientific research, often research that has no obvious connection, perhaps to any kind of technological inventions, much less the ones that they would one day enable. You can see that with the, the, the growth of molecular uh, genetics uh, in the middle of the 20th century, uh, including the discovery of mRNA. The scientists who were pursuing that work weren't trying to invent a vaccine. They were trying to advance our understanding of nature. We make the same argument about atomic physics and the atom bomb or electromagnetism and radar, radio. Uh, and so I think, though it is perhaps less politically satisfying, um, I think it's important if we want to have more of these kinds of breakthrough overnight successes that we lay the groundwork by investing in basic scientific research, even basic scientific research that might not obviously be connected to the problems that we're trying to solve. And so, for example, to make this concrete in the modern context with the COVID-19 vaccines, you go back six decades and to Francis Crick uh, of, you know, Crick and Watson double helix fame uh, and uh, the, the study of the relationship between DNA and RNA sort of providing the the seedlings of uh, what would become the mRNA vaccines for COVID-19. Absolutely. And, and again, this is not to discount enormous amounts of uh, medical biotechnological research that's been going on for decades, including on mRNA, mRNA vaccines specifically, the kinds of vaccines that we um, uh, that, that Moderna and Pfizer developed for COVID-19. But yes, if you fast, if you go all the way back to 1960, um, that's when you had this discovery uh, there's a kind of you know, famous in, in, in the world of science meeting on Good Friday in 1960 in Cambridge of a bunch of biologists discussing 
cutting-edge research in fields that at the time were thought to be related but, but distinct. And this aha moment when Sidney Brenner uh, and Crick uh, uh, realized um, that what, what had been hit upon was the existence of messenger RNA. Um, and that this later uh, is what would end up being used uh, in, in vaccines, right, as a way of delivering genetic information to the body to develop an immune response to, to a disease. Now, they weren't trying to develop a vaccine when they had that insight. They were just, they were trying to understand the molecular structure of life. And in fact, this story is really just a piece of a broader uh, uh, revolution, really, in the life sciences. The post-war period was an enormous there was an enormous growth in our understanding of biological processes, molecular genetics, um, and that whole infrastructure of scientific knowledge is what's underlying uh, this directed research to develop an mRNA vaccine today. And you can see the same thing happening in other, other cases throughout history. In World War II, when the government directed research to develop radar or the bomb uh, or computing devices, they were able to draw on scientific knowledge that had been accrued over the course of decades, really coming out of one of the most momentous scientific advances since the 17th century, from the late 19th until World War II. So those, uh, again, it's not an entirely satisfying political lesson because uh, these, this kind of research takes a long time. But you know, to kind of put it glibly, if you want to have more of these technological innovations, you need to have more scientific revolutions too because that's often what we're drawing on when, we're, when we are uh, inventing these kinds of things. And when, you, when we look at big pharma companies, you know, how much of that long view and that investment in general science is something they are willing to do as compared to trying to solve short-term problems uh, because they need to get drugs to market to make money? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great point. So I think the private sector spends an enormous amount on, on research and development, um, uh, more than the federal government uh, now. Um, however, the vast majority of that, uh, is, as you say, directed at the kind of applied research and development side of the spectrum, as, as it should be. Um, basic science, research into our basic understanding of nature, whether it's in physics or biology, chemistry, even mathematics, um, although the private sector does support that kind of research, it tends to shy away from it because the returns on investment are not as obvious in a meaningful time frame. A lot of those discoveries won't turn out to be useful. Some of them will turn out to be enormously useful. Um, and so this is really where I think the government has an important role to play uh, in funding basic science, which is a public good, um, which is not to discount the role of philanthropic organizations or the private sector. Uh, there's, there's no reason not to pursue a kind of all, all of the above strategy there. Uh, but the federal government, I think, has a unique role. He is Tony Mills, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, senior fellow at Pepperdine University's School of Public Policy. Tony Mills, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, this tweet from uh, former New York Times columnist Anand Gerard Haradas. It's time for this question to be front and center. Should Fox News be allowed to exist? 
brain mashing as a business model shouldn't be legal. Legal. Former New York Times, former New York Times columnist. Should Fox News be allowed to exist? The model shouldn't be legal. And uh, it's not just uh, members of the media leading the charge for censorship, for the elimination of dissent. It's also those they enlist to be part of the punditocracy to uh, build out their echo chamber, including those from law enforcement, from intelligence agencies. Going back to this uh, riff last week, last week from uh, Philip Mudd, former CIA analyst and uh, now CIA, CIA uh, former CIA analyst and now CNN counterterrorism analyst, I should say. I've got to get on an airplane myself in about two weeks. And I had a friend of mine today, Don, text me. I, I, I double mask when I travel. It is a paper mask and a fabric mask. And my friend said, because you're on CNN, you got to wear a hat. And that had never occurred to me before. I got to go to an airport and, and be concerned. I'm not on the Capitol. I'm in an airport in Charlotte, North Carolina, that somebody's going to come up and berate me, maybe attack me. I think, to, to, to be clear, Don, that in some ways we are focused too much on Donald Trump. Donald Trump is representative of what is happening in America. Americans are saying, look, civil discourse doesn't matter to me. A country that was built on immigrants doesn't matter to me. Immigrants are not welcome in this country, despite the fact that I came, and myself included, came from a family of immigrants. I think the most disturbing aspect of the last four years in America is not the president. It's the president has exposed in America that most of us, and I mean more than 50 percent, are uncomfortable with. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. First of all, a cartoonish caricature of Trump supporters and projection onto Trump supporters, the posture of so many on the left in elite circles. What would Philip Mudd say to our friend, the former New York Times columnist, who doesn't think Fox News should be legal, I wonder, in his uh, Jeremiah about civil discourse? For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Martin Gurry, former CIA analyst and author of The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium. Martin Gurry, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan. Happy to be here. So as a former CIA analyst, how do you react to what uh, your, uh, well, maybe he wasn't a colleague, but he certainly was in the same agency, what uh, Philip Mudd had to say? Um, Wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. I'm trying to figure out what that has to do with terrorism. Well, yeah, right. I mean, essentially, uh, he believes that, uh, you know, every Trump supporter is uh, somebody who uh, did or is inclined to storm the Capitol and engage in violence and and then complains about civil discourse in the same sentence. It's sort of uh, what you wrote about in slouching towards uh, toward post journalism, uh, decrying the very things that uh, the Dean Baquettes of the world at The New York Times and others engage in. Right. If you look, if you read my book, you'll see that what what this gentleman said is a fairly straightforward um, uh, articulation of elite ideals. Uh, there, there is a class of um, of people that inhabit our institutions right now that just seems to have uh, a, a panic fear of the public. Uh, I think because the internet, of course has brought the public into such close proximity. So his views in some ways, I mean, they were kind of remarkably incoherent, I thought, but but um, not unusual. It's it's the elites looking down and seeing what, what are all those crazy people about. 
uh, of course, all you got to do is go online, and you know, some of them are crazy, some of them are sane. Uh, it's a very multiple and, and, and divided public. But to the elite, they all seem like a bunch of barbarians uh, who are trying to storm uh, the citadels of, of authority. And so uh, they treat them as um, chess pieces uh, to be to manipulate. At least that's sort of the view of Matt Taibbi, him writing over at his uh, uh, blog at, at Substack, talking about the coverage in the Trump years, hyping a threat for a news cycle or two, then moving to the next panic as the basis for the first one, as the basis for the first one dissipates. How many headlines were aimed at our outrage centers in the last four years that were quietly memory hold once they outlived their political utility? And he uses the example of all the, the stories with respect to the Russian collusion investigation and the allegations of Russian collusion that went nowhere uh, as an example of what he's talking about. And then when that didn't pan out, as you write about uh, pulling this out of the memory hole for us, then Dean Beckett, the executive out of the New York Times, says, OK, well, that didn't work. The Mueller investigation didn't work. So now it's time to do race and class warfare. Yeah. And I mean, the thing, the point that I make is that it really did work for them, though. Um, you have to realize that newspapers uh, never sold news. In the old days, they sold an audience to advertisers. Mm-hmm. In these saddle days for the elites, uh, the advertisers have all gone online. So big brands and the big uh, uh, overhead companies like the New York Times had to figure out a way to stay in business. And uh, they peddled that story of, of uh, Trump-Russia you know, conspiracies and the manipulations of fake news uh, having determined uh, the elections of 2016 to an extraordinary degree. I mean, 3,000 articles in the, t- in the time period uh, in question. I mean, the way I put it is, is it's as if journalism were being conducted by uh, under the impulse of an obsessive compulsive personality. Almost everyone, I think virtually every one of those articles found Trump to be guilty of something, right? Uh, and so you go, well, in the end, it kind of fizzled. However, during that time, uh, digital subscriptions for the, to- for the Times skyrocketed. The Times found a new model of bringing people inside the paywall, which is not to sell news. Nobody needs news. Uh, that, that is not a commodity in, in the digital age. Uh, information today is virtually infinite. So the news actually chases the reader rather the other way around. So what the New York Times found it could do was sell um, polarization, sell a cause, a creed, so that if you dislike Trump and you felt that Trump was this dangerous man and, and you wanted to do something about it, you would go inside uh, that, that paywall and you would you know, be told exactly how bad he was and be given good words to, to make arguments in that, in that cause. It worked for them. Uh, when when uh, 2016, uh, the, the presidential elections came rolling around, the, the Times had fewer than 1 million or maybe around 1 million digital subscribers. By 2020, they had 6 million most in the world. Now, that's, by Facebook standards, a pretty puny number, but these are paying customers. Well, so they, they, yeah. they succeeded in doing what they wanted to. When we come back with former say analyst Martin Gurry, I want to ask uh, whether what's uh, driving the work product of the D.C. press corps is ideology is it just the new business model? Is it some combination of the two? More with Martin Gurry right after this.
Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with former CIA analyst Martin Gurry about uh, the uh, ideological disposition that the D.C. press corps calls now to prohibit, make illegal outlets like Fox News. And I want to pick up there because uh, you make the point that it's uh, not just ideological, maybe not even primarily ideological. It's the business model. It is totally a business model. And an interesting question is, will it survive Donald Trump? I mean, Donald Trump was the business model. Uh, He was mana from heaven for not just New York Times, but CNN and the cable news networks, they would say so. I mean, they, I don't think they, they made any secret of it. So now the man is gone, um, and they're going to try and pound him, I suspect, into the ground, even though he's not there anymore at the White House. But that's diminishing returns. So it's interesting to see whether this enormous growth in, uh, in subscribers, in digital subscribers that they enjoyed, the New York Times enjoyed uh, over the last four years, continues. And so part of what they're doing to make it more than just about Donald Trump, as they caricature right. Trump, uh, on and off, they they are redefining and, and rewriting American history by thing through uh, underwriting things like the 1619 Project. Yeah, I want to make it very clear. I don't have a political axe to grind. I am an analyst, and I think there is a lot of reporting on the other side that is equally as vehement and extreme and as polarizing. But the point that I find fascinating about the New York Times is they don't believe themselves to be that way. They, they believe themselves to live in this Olympus of, of objectivity, mm. even if they themselves are saying that objectivity should be done away with in certain uh, categories like Donald Trump. They explicitly said that again and again and again, uh, and I think followed through with it. You know, the, the tremendous question of the New York Times newsroom was, why can't we use the word racist every time that Trump addresses the subject of race? Uh, and, and that caused all kinds of controversy in, in that organization. But by now they're doing it. Well, that's right. I mean, and, and hey, look, David Remnick, a uh, New Yorker and one of the, the leading lights of the uh, journalistic left, uh, said right from the outset that uh, all of the uh, old rules are suspended. They're gone. So it, it struck uh, people, I think, initially as just antagonism because they were so stunned by the result, so outraged by the result that they were going to spend four years make, doing their best to undo it. And that's part of the motivation. But I, I think the, the key insight here that, that you provide with the uh, addition of some historical context is that, um, you know, maybe they didn't even anticipate how well it, work, it would work financially initially. But once it started working financially, then it was really to, uh, pressing your foot down on the pedal. Oh, yeah. I I don't have any inside information, but I'm personally persuaded that they had no clue. This whole idea of abandoning objectivity and trying to treat Trump as a dangerous person, that was a word to use, came from partisan herd instinct. I mean, they really sincerely believed that to be true. But then the numbers started to get real good, and they realized that they had this money machine in Trump. And you're right that after that, they just, well, I mean, what could be better, right? I mean, you are being sincere and you're loathing of this man who is president. And at the same time, you're making money on, on him. So it, it, it's a perfect situation. So then, as you write about uh, in, in your piece in City Journal that I've uh, been referencing, the history reframing mission is now in the hands of a deeply self-righteous group that has trouble discerning the many human stopping places between true and false, good and evil, objective and subjective. Well, if that's true, what are some of the potential 
ends we could experience here? Uh, do we have sort of social disintegration before we have outlets like uh, the New York Times go away or, or 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 become marginalized, you know, based on their own conduct? I think the latter. I mean, I, I think in the end, if you if you choose to become a a church, which is essentially what what the New York Times has, has opted for. Well, you will have your, your congregation, but if you are not of that congregation, nobody's going to listen to, to the preachers, right? So um, I think it's going to be marginalized. I think already newspapers and, and everything that I wrote in that, in that City Journal piece was based on the analysis and, and, and observations of, of the brilliant media scholar, Andre Mir, and he... He believes that newspapers are essentially doomed. Uh, and they're doomed for demographic reasons. You reach a certain age level, uh, the, the Zoomers, the post-millennials, and they, um, they have never heard, held a newspaper in their hands. Most millennials have not held a newspaper in their hands. My children are millennials. They have never held. They're very well informed. They have never held a newspaper in their hands. So um, what you will have is this kind of legacy system uh, more or less selling a, a, a creed to people who believe in it and who want you know, articulate preachers to tell them what they already know. And uh, the rest of the world will, will treat it as a very marginal thing. We should not think of the New York Times as what it was. That's true of many institutions and organizations today that are sort of being crunched by, by, the, digital, by the digital tsunami. He is Martin Gurry. He's a former CIA analyst, and he's the author of The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium. Martin Gurry, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Yep, happy to be here. It's our mistake. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. The bad news for the D.C. press corps with respect to the Biden administration. Uh, he's going to put the fact checkers out of business because, as Glenn Kessler from the Amazon Post said uh, over the weekend, you know, he expects that Joe Biden will tell the truth like Obama did. So there's no need for him anymore. Uh, I assume the Biden, you know, I did five years of Obama uh, and uh, I assume the Biden uh, presidency will be a lot like the Obama presidency and that they will be responsive uh, and will be able to quickly back up what they're saying. And occasionally the president will go off kilter, particularly when he's, you know, speaking extemporaneously and not following something that previously previously been fact checked. Hmm. I, I tell you, it's it's something to give a uh, confirmed plagiarist the benefit of the doubt of being the, a truth teller, a truth teller, isn't it? I mean, just in case you thought that there was going to be even the gentlest pushback from anybody not named Ducey in that D.C. press corps for these briefings. Yeah, but at least he'll have some decorum. Just ask the questions. Hey, the important thing is that they're all happy and content. And, and the immortal words of uh, John Heilman, all our heroes were back like the Avengers, the Clintons, the Obamas, the Bushes, all of our heroes. For more on our heroes, we're pleased to be joined by Thaddeus McCotter again. He's the former chairman of the Republican House Policy Committee. He's uh, American Greatness, amgreatness.com contributor, and the Monday co-host of the John Bachelor Show. Thaddeus McCotter, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me back. So uh, no need for fact-checkers now that uh, we have a President Biden. 
Well, it's insane. And he gives away the game when he talks about how he expects the Biden administration to be better. He has no proof for his uh, estimate that they will be telling the truth. So he just wants to do it. And he's just going to do it. I mean, it's a total abdication of their responsibility as journalists to hold both sides accountable. And it's very disturbing for a free society to have a press that's in the tank from one party or the other. Yeah. Meanwhile, speaking of disturbing, uh, Biden asking his uh, DNI to assess domestic extremism. And, and here we go. Uh, uh, Glenn Greenwald has written about this, too. The prospect of uh, a new war on terrorism that's directed inwardly. Uh, against people that they describe as terrorists because, in many cases, they just have differences of opinion on policy matters. Well, it's the red state scare is really what it is. So when you look at it, the left's relationship with political violence is not one that inspires confidence to set up this domestic terrorist uh, investigation. When you think about it, these are people who put pictures of Chairman Mao above their mantle place, a mass murderer who killed millions. When you look at their pictures of Che Guevara as radical chic on their T-shirts, these are people who spent all summer rationalizing and justifying away violence in pursuit of a political goal. Unfortunately, that's not the type of political violence they're talking about. It seems to be that they're trying to tar anybody who supports uh, the Republican Party and President Trump and that policy agenda as potential domestic terrorists. And as you know, that's not a call for unity, so much of which we heard about uh, all through the inaugural. What do you make of uh, Mitch McConnell's Me Tooing, the uh, arguments being made by those who uh, believe President Trump should be convicted in the Senate? When you look at what McConnell's trying to do, he's trying to walk a tightrope, isn't he? You're hearing about the president talking about a potential patriot party. You're hearing rumblings amongst the Republican senatorial caucus that they do not wish to be primaried by people running in the patriot party. Again, just to draw the distinction, that's just a wing of the Republican party. He's not setting up an entirely different patriot party because obviously they'll be running in Republican primaries. So what Senator McConnell is trying to do is trying to walk a tightrope that Nancy Pelosi's put in front of him without tripping on it and falling uh, 30,000 feet to his demise as political majority, as, as a minority leader. I think it's a very difficult task to do. Clearly, they should first figure out whether or not this is constitutional at all, which I don't think it is, because can you imagine being able to go back in the past and, like with Oliver Cromwell digging up the bones and putting the head on a pike, you could go after anybody who's out of public life with an impeachment process and try to do it for partisan political reasons, which is exactly what we're seeing now. Uh, I wanted to get your take on um, Joe Biden, the um, standard bearer for Catholicism, uh, because you write about uh, in a piece at amgreatness.com recently, as a Catholic Union supporting Democrat, no doubt my father would have believed President Donald Trump was a BS artist especially given his background as a New York real estate mogul. But you also say he would have surely voted for Trump at least once. The uh, New York Times and uh, the New Yorker doing what they are want to do whenever there is a public expression of of faith, particularly from uh, someone who believes in the Catholic label but not the catechism like Joe Biden. In Biden's Catholic faith and ascendant liberal Christianity is the headline of the New York Times this weekend. Can Joe Biden save American Catholicism from the far right? In other words, can Joe Biden save American Catholicism from the catechism? And there's comparisons to how they treat it, how they're treating Joe Biden and his Catholic faith as compared to, for example, the dogma living loudly within Amy Coney Barrett. 
And I just wanted your comment about uh, the coverage of Joe Biden wearing his uh, stylized social justice, politicized Catholicism on his sleeve. He's a cafeteria Catholic. He picks and chooses what he wants. He doesn't follow uh, the strict teachings of the Catholic Church. The infallible doctrine has been put forward, the catechism. And I think that any Catholic that looks to the New Yorker or the New York Times as the standard bearer for what is Catholicism, as if it's the new Baltimore catechism, is making a grave mistake. It's scandalous, if you think about it. Well, the Catholic Church has a very difficult dilemma on its hands, and it seems to me that they have to make a clear distinction. For those Catholics who are promoting not only abortion here at home, but spending taxpayer money to do it and sending taxpayer money abroad to perform abortions, that is not the new Catholicism. That's called heresy. And what about uh, on matters of uh, uh, men playing in women's sports, matters of uh, uh, transgender individuals in the military? I think it goes to the larger point that we're seeing. We talked about the whole article of Joe Biden. I didn't use the word malarkey because that's not the word my father used. But BS is what it is. When you think about it, look, he talks about like he's supporting union people, but then he, he acts as the Keystone Pipeline and puts tens of thousands of people out of work and destroys the economy and decimates the economy of places like New Mexico, which voted for him. When you look at a lot of the suburban uh, soccer moms that voted for him, now their daughters are going to be have, have a very difficult time getting athletic scholarships now because of the competition with men that are turning into women or whatever. And so when you look at the final analysis of this, Biden talks a good game, but the policies that he is already pursuing are decidedly different from what he has promised people. He is Thaddeus McCarter, former chairman of the House Republican Policy Committee, American Greatness contributor, and Greatness.com. Monday co-host of the John Bachelor Show as well. Thaddeus McCarter, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, we're still getting the same reporting, even as uh, lockdown or politicians are relaxing some of their strictures, uh, allowing restaurants to open at a fraction of their capacity and and that against the backdrop of actually more cases and hospitalizations than over the spring and summer months last year when they were enthusiastic lockdowners Hmm, i wonder yes not just of the political change in administrations at the federal level but also with respect to the changing landscape on the ground politically and financially for some of these politicians in their respective cities and states. But yet we still get the, uh, the Mexican president AMLO has COVID. We get Dave Chappelle has COVID, uh, for the purpose of what they don't care about it being severe or not severe. They want to celebritize the virus and these powerful people, uh, People of great notoriety can get it just as you can get it. And so continue to be afraid. Live in fear, live for COVID. Well, thankfully, you have outlets like the American Institute for Economic Reform that uh, uh, look at uh, what the press is doing and uh, 
give some additional perspective that you won't get from the D.C. press corps, like this Faces of Lockdowns a piece that they did. You've know, you got to humanize it, give individual examples. These are real people, too. For example, Irene. Irene is no stranger to adversity. In 2018, her husband, Chris, died unexpectedly. Faced, uh, faced with her grief, Irene juggled raising their four boys with the sudden demand of learning how to run a restaurant. Prior to her husband's untimely passing, she had not been involved with operating the diner. So when he died, she briefly contemplated selling it. But the restaurant was her husband's legacy. Quitting was not an option, especially for a New Yorker like herself. As a resolute business owner and mother, she refuses to give up her rights to freedom and to earn a living. Or Adam. Adam is a special education teacher at a high school in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. As a, he's especially concerned with the academic, social, and emotional well-being of his students during lockdowns. And by the way... This is an important point. Lockdowns are hurting all students, but special ed students in particular, uh, special ed students the most. Continuing, his students come from a diverse neighborhood and most are from immigrant families. Adam has watched most of his class suffer through remote learning and fall behind academically because of school closures. A significant portion of their families do not have the time, resources, or ability to facilitate learning in a way that at all resembles in-person education. Hmm. So what do you say to Irene and Adam uh, and Irene's family, her four boys? What do you say to Adam and Adam's students, all of those COVID enthusiasts, those idiot circle fanatics, virtue signaling simps? What do you say? Do their lives and livelihoods matter too in that order? Thanks for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please stay informed so you can be courageous and we can live free. And join me again on tomorrow's program. This is the Dan Prof Show.